If you'd pray with me, please. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to open up your word. Thank you for the truth that never changes. Thank you for the depth that we so often miss. Thank you for all that you are. Help us, even in our finitude, to understand your infinity, your eternality. Help us. And I pray, fill us with your spirit. Open your word to us even as we open it. And I pray that you help change us. In Jesus' name, amen. So listen, hark. The herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth, mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Joyful, all you nations rise to knowing the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. There's actually a lot going on in those, even those first couple of lines of this song. And so for the next couple of weeks, I want to want to look at that. Though, full disclosure, <clears throat> technically, this sermon series is not about Hark the Herald Angels Sing, um, just cheating, um, using it as a way to sneak in some theology at Christmas time. So I, I don't want you to sit there and go, well, apparently we're just studying the song. No, no, I'm just using the song as a framework. Though technically, isn't that what Charles Wesley did when he wrote it like 300 years ago? He was just sneaking theology in. Y'all just singing like a Christmas carol, but he's like, <laughs> you learn stuff. So, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. And we go, hey, I know where that's from. I know that, that Bible story. I've seen flannel graphs. I was in Sunday school. Sweet, beautiful angel choirs singing in the skies as the, as the shepherds just gently sit there and go, oh, that's beautiful. You can read it in the Bible, right? It's Luke 2. If you want to, knock yourself out. Luke 2, verse 8. There are shepherds living out in the fields nearby, outside of suburban Bethlehem, just outside of, Jer of Jerusalem, keeping watch out over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Why? Because they're, they're scary, right? Angels are scary. And, you know, they're, they're there every night in the dark, you know, laying out in the fields, watching their sheep. It's dark, it's quiet, and then suddenly it's neither. I mean, very suddenly. It's just all of a sudden there's a shiny guy there. It's got to be a little unsettling. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, because angels always have to start with saying, don't be afraid, because they are by nature terrifying. In fact, Islam, when they talk about angels in Islam, they, they say that they're made of fire. They're creatures of flame. By definition, these are oozing power. They're scary. I mean, think about the, even the, the chapter before this. You can stay in chapter 2, but if you wanted to, you can flip a chapter earlier. Wasn't Mary a little terrified when the angel came and spoke to her? It might have even been the same angel. I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised. In Luke chapter 1, verse 26, in the sixth month of the pregnancy of Mary's cousin Elizabeth, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Spoiler alert, the virgin's name was Mary. I know, that's going to come up a couple of times this month, so keep that in the back of your head. The angel went to this Mary and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you, which is like super good news. But Mary was greatly troubled, which is technically correct. Literally, that is what the words are saying in Greek. But the, the implication in Greek is 
greatly troubled like the rapids in a river are greatly troubled. This churning fear, this roiling inside, this turmoil. When we go greatly troubled, it's not a, huh, it's a, what? Mary is greatly troubled at his words. She was worried about what she wondered, what kind of greeting this might be. She couldn't understand it at all. And the angel said to her, no, 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 don't be afraid, because they always have to start with that, right? No, no, don't be afraid. Mary, you found favor with God. This isn't a scary thing. This is a good thing. You're going to be with child and give birth to a son, and you're going to give him the... I love that he doesn't say, might we suggest. Don't be afraid. Well, you're a little terrifying. Right. Here's what you're going to do. It's like he's Irish. Nobody in Ireland ever suggested anything. They tell you, all right, you'll take the sixth roundabout. You go, I wasn't planning to do that. Oh, no, surely you will. You'll take the sixth roundabout. Oh, okay. Apparently that's what I'm doing. You're going to give him the name Jesus. And he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will never end. That's a lot to take in. She's a young girl. I understand this is sudden, but you're going to give birth to a son, a savior, a king. Because that's what heralds do, right? They, They announce, they herald the king. Isn't that what the word herald means, to announce? Actually, it isn't. I like words. Herald actually comes from an old Frankish word, Harivolt. It doesn't mean to announce. The Harivolt is literally the warrior who wields war. He's the one who wields the warriors. It's the Harivolt that comes and goes, the war starts now. I'm telling you this. So we go, oh, he's the guy that announces stuff. By the way, we're starting at three. You go, no, that's the later iteration of this. But the Hanavald was originally the war chief who says, I declare it starts now. I'm the one telling you this. Which gets really interesting when you think of what the name Gabriel means. We go, ah, yes, a pretty angel. You go, the name means warrior of God. Warrior of God comes and says, I'm essentially the Hanavald. I'm telling you this all starts now. The king is born now. This is Gabriel, the guy who fought demons with Michael in the book of Daniel. This is Gabriel who terrified Zechariah, who was in the Holy of Holies, and Gabriel appeared. And Zechariah, he says, don't be afraid, Zechariah, because you always have to start with that, right? But then Zechariah starts not really entirely believing him, so he gets a little torqued, and he says, no, let me clarify. I am Gabriel. I am the warrior of God. You're scared to stand here in the Holy of Holies representing the presence of God? I stand in the very presence of God, and I'm telling you truth. I kind of like you to be a little scared at the moment. That Gabriel, he's that powerful. And yet, even though we say, Hark the huddled angels sing, that that has some serious oomph to it. Even though we're saying, listen, this warrior angel, this war leader who wields the angels of heaven, that's the guy who's saying this. When we sing that, that's the guy making this proclamation. If all angels are scary by nature, this is the angel that scares the angels. This is the angel who goes, now, and they jump too. And you were scared by the other guys. They are absolutely right to be terrified. And yet, the angel says to Mary, no, no, but don't be afraid. 
I'm coming to say the war starts now. But I don't want you to be afraid because this is a joy for you. I want to share something amazing. So in this next chapter, in Luke 2, verse 10, that angel, probably the same angel, said to the shepherds, don't be afraid. We're rightly terrified. Yes, you are. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in this town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one, the sovereign Lord, born tonight in the town of David, Bethlehem. Named literally just means house of bread. It's famous for being surrounded by fields and making good bread. Micah referred to it as fertile Bethlehem. Bethlehem of It's fertile Bethlehem, this little suburb five, six miles south of Jerusalem. The horrible angel said, this will be a sign to you. You're going to find a baby wrapped in claws lying in a manger. Lying in a feeding trough for animals. Not in Jerusalem, not in the city of kings, not in a golden bassinet. In a suburb known for bakeries? Sitting in a food trough. That's where you're going to find him. And they go, um, suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host. By the way, those are military terms, aren't they? A company of the army. A great, huge company of the heavenly host. Military terms. Appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. But to be honest, it would probably be vaguely hard to feel a little peaceful at that moment. Right? Because this isn't a sweet-sounding chorus of gentle angels singing a Christmas carol. That's the Baroque painting of what the Bible is talking about. That's Rubens painting this. Going, oh, that's so beautiful. It doesn't even say that they're singing, does it? But they're marching across the skies, arrayed for battle, led by their war leader, an army made up of the angelic soldiers of God, following his lead and cheering God, heralding, announcing that God would be glorified in the highest because this awesome king is born. This is less soft, glowy light with an angel with soft raiment saying, joy, peace. And more suddenly a guy in armor with a giant sword and a standard comes and goes, shunk, the war starts now. Praise be to God, it's already won. That's not what we normally think of when we think of this. That's not in the Christmas specials. It just happens to be in the Bible. There's a lot more arminess going on here than we usually think of. But beyond just the... And it's not just, well, Kevin likes that sort of thing. No, the Bible seems to like that sort of thing. Because that is what they're saying. They're saying the great war begins now. What I love is that nobody knew when this was going to happen, including Satan. He knew that it would. So is this the first time he hears about it? Has he been saying, I'm trying to plan for this, I'm trying to be aware, I'm trying... And then all of a sudden, across the skies, angels all shout, and Gabriel goes, now. What was Satan's take on that? 
I know what he originally eventually did is to sit there and go, uh, may I suggest you kill all the newborns? I'm scrambling here because I didn't know it was now. But stop and think about what is actually going on. What is Gabriel, what are these angels saying? And think of the juxtaposition of what that first angel said versus what these angels are saying. This really impressive angel versus what these amazing soldier angels are shouting. This anointed king whom all Israel has been waiting for for centuries. These heralds are heralding. Not just a better king than Herod, which admittedly, low bar, but the anointed king promised by God that they've been waiting for for centuries. This is coming. There's soldiers shouting this victory, saying the time of the great king starts now. This king of kings, this son of God, this savior of the world, this awesome heir to God's great kingdom is finally here sitting in a feeding trough. That's the juxtaposition. You go, oh, oh, that's really not what I would do. That's not what I, if we were doing this, if you and I were setting this up, sure, you and I are setting this up. If we were doing it, we wouldn't do it this way. I mean, we'd make sure that he's in a cathedral. There's a spectacular choir singing. He's in a golden bassinet. He's glowing, perhaps. And the, 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 the choir who's singing this would be so beautiful that their voices would sound like the voices of angels. Because that's the way angels are described, right? It's beautiful. Scary. Scary. I'm not knocking Handel's Messiah. Don't get me wrong. I, I actually I love Handel. Um, it's just not the way God did it. It's not the way he presented it. It wasn't this big musical number. It's not in a cathedral or even in a temple. It's not in the city of kings. It's not ornate. It's not fancy. There's no song to it. It's none of the stuff that we so often want to add to it to, to improve the story, to imbue it with a glory that God didn't. You can improve on Christmas, can't you? Here on earth, he's just this lizard-looking newborn. Because every newborn, I don't care how cute you think your kid is, every newborn is this purple, wrinkled, lizard-looking thing. Jesus was a purple, wrinkled, lizard-looking thing. He was not glowing and blonde like Rubens painted him as. No. He's squealing and going, oh, it's too bright. I've seen newborns. I've seen you as newborns. I know how this goes. Here on earth, he's this lizard-looking newborn sitting in a food trough. Don't dress that up. In heaven, in the highest place, the highest above us place, there's the above us place that you can see where the clouds are, the above us place where the stars are, and above that, beyond all the above us places we can imagine, in the highest place, God is being glorified perfectly because there they understand what's really going on that night in Bethlehem. They get it. They understand it fully and completely. On here, we just see the barest tip of the iceberg of reality, the tiniest physical sliver that happens to be showing of a much grander, much deeper, much richer spiritual happening. I kind of find myself, I will admit, I kind of find myself sometimes siding with the iconoclasts in the early church history. 
who sat there and said, you know, when you try to physically depict this and try to gussy it up, I know you're trying to make it glorified, but you're doing it with our stuff. You're plating it with our broken gold. You're, you're painting it with our broken colors. You're, you're actually demeaning what you're trying to up, uh, uphold. You're actually tearing it down and going, look, I'm, I'm making it smaller because I want you to see what you're doing. I, I get the effort. I get the point. But instead of seeing Christ being born in a genuinely mean estate, he is genuinely a mewling infant in a food trough. Instead of seeing that incarnation as itself a massive sacrifice, and we think of the cross as a sacrifice, but him just being here with us is a sacrifice. Instead of seeing that in a way that we will never truly comprehend this side of paradise. Instead, we like to make sure that you understand that his mean body still glowed. It wasn't, it wasn't really like ours. We'll play this Christmas cantata on pipe organs. We'll gild his birth with gold and with beauty. And, and, all, and all the animals knelt That isn't helpful. That's not helpful. It's not evil. It's not evil. I get it. I get the desire. And I love Handel, not just his Messiah. I actually listen to the other stuff. I actually like Rubens. There's a vitality to his paintings. He, he, he has movement. He has light. He does some really cool stuff. His people seem like they're actually breathing. I, I respect that. But it's all still our stuff, our broken stuff. We've polished it up. We've made it really pretty, but it's still our stuff. And if we're not careful, I respect it, I get it. But if we're not careful by humbling and rubbing the birth of Christ, we can miss both the meanness of his incarnation and the transcendent glory of the incarnation. We can miss both of those. We can miss the meanness because we, we make it less real, less visceral, less unimpressive because it was unimpressive. That's the whole point is that it was unimpressive. You have to see it that way. Even if you like to ignore scripture and go, let's stick a couple of kings there. Maybe a little drummer boy. It was so special. The one thing it wasn't was unimpressive. If you really look, wink, wink, it really did kind of look like the birth of a king. No, it really didn't. It really didn't. But I need to assure myself that it was anything other than just unimpressive. Good, but don't do it that way. Don't change what was happening here. Don't dress it up to look kind of like a kingly birth. Because if you do that, you, you undermine understanding what the incarnation was really all about. You, you forget what Paul meant to the Philippians when he said, Christ Jesus, who being very nature God, being completely God in all of his fullness, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be clung to, something to be held on to, something he should refuse to relent. But instead, he gave all that up. He made himself nothing, emptied himself by his own volition, taking the very nature of a servant. He was completely God, but he became completely us, human in all of our limited transitory physicality. And being made in human likeness, appearing just like us in every way, not just sort of looking like that, he really was totally us. I find myself thinking of another Charles Wesley song that he wrote the year before his Hark the Herald Angels sing, song. 
talking about Jesus, he said, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite was his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. We go, yeah. Well, I mean, wink, wink, not really. Yes, 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 really, really, yes, really. He wasn't just sort of like us. He was us. He was just us the way we had always supposed to have been. He's us the way we should have always been. How huge is that? It's bigger than I can wrap my head around. So when I gussy up the birth of Christ, I can miss the fullness of the unimpressiveness of that manger. But I can also miss the fullness of what he really gave up. I can miss it if I think that somehow painted light or plated gold can even remotely accurately reflect God's glory. I get it. I get the attempt. I do. But I don't ever want to think that I can imbue glory into the situation. I can make it more glory than God made it. Because I can gild that moment. We're told in the Old Testament, Solomon built a temple, and he built a really cool one. We're told that he had more money than anybody. He had all this gold from Ophir. He used it all in the temple. Everything in the temple, the walls, the floors, the ceiling, covered in gold. The braziers made of gold. The lampstands made of gold. The Ark of the Covenant made of gold. It's all gold. And there's braziers and lamps and torches everywhere. He built in such a way that you say, you walk in there and everything is gold and reflected light. They made it as bright as you could possibly make in the ancient world. They did everything that they could to say, this is like being in the presence of God. This overwhelming light surrounded. This is as close as I can get to you walking into the sun itself. It was phenomenal. It was so phenomenal that after it was destroyed and centuries later it was rebuilt and they rebuilt a beautiful temple. The people who had seen the old one wept because they went, this is nothing compared to the old temple. This is the most beautiful temple in the ancient world and it's nothing compared to Solomon's temple. And yet, we're told in Isaiah that when Isaiah actually got a glimpse of God, a glimpse of the actual throne room, a glimpse, a vision. He crumpled and said, I'm unclean because I'm seeing something that is so much more powerful, so much more holy, so much more than anything I've ever processed as holy. This is so phenomenally different. Nobody's had to open their mouths yet. And I'm just there and I crumple and I say, woe is me, I'm a, a man of unclean lips. I'm I see my brokenness in comparison to God's glory. Isaiah had been in Solomon's temple. The most beautiful temple in the ancient world was nothing compared to Solomon's first temple. And that was nothing compared to the throne room. You were never going to impress God with the stuff we do to imbue something with holiness. I don't, I don't ever want to think that seeing Solomon's temple, seeing the later temple, seeing our church building, seeing what we can do, I don't ever want to think that that 
accurately pictures God. That's impressive enough. It's glorious enough that I can say, ah, that. I don't ever want to look at Christmas and picture it as magical or the birth of Christ as something that would have been special here. I want to see it as, as, as only the merest, tiniest, physical, earthly iceberg tip that was completely unimpressive to normal human eyes. I, I want to see that. I want to say this would have been nothing because I also see this massive spiritual heavenly truth that's so much beyond my comprehension that the, that the best, most amazing creative craftsmanship employing the best artisans, using the best materials, using all the resources in the world comes off like a child's crayon drawing by comparison. And, 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 and it's like a child's crayon drawing drawing a, a sunny day, but she had to use the blue crayon because her brother ate the yellow one. And she goes, look, Dad. And I'm like, what is that? It's the sun. Is it? Cool. Way to go. As a father, I can say, oh, I appreciate that. You paid that for me. Oh, thank you so much. I'm sure that God would look at the Solomon's temple and say, oh, you did this for me. Thank you so much. And it is. It's cute. It's sweet. God, help us if our mental picture of a sunny day is a crude blue circle on pulpy paper, if that's what we say, yeah, that's what a sunny day is, wouldn't we miss something if that's what we understood it to be? God help us if when we think of Christmas, we think of Baroque paintings or Handel's Messiah or a beautiful Christmas tree, and we say, yeah, Christmas. No, that's a blue crayon circle on a pulpy paper. I want to be overwhelmed by it. I want—I never want to think of it as a Rubens painting or a stop-motion animated Hallmark special or beautiful cantata sung by a choir or a multimedia extravaganza at a huge megachurch or Santa Claus or reindeer or magic or presents or dangling ornaments, that's all so much more than Christmas should ever have been and so much less than Christmas was and is. By doing that, we flatten it out into something where we go, yes, I have a mental picture of this magicalness. No. It was something you would have missed because it was so ordinary. And it's something so incredible you will never be able to comprehend it until you are walking in perfection with God. Do not flatten it into this. Understand this and live in this. It has to be something that those same shepherds would have walked right past. If it hadn't been for the angels, they would have walked right past in Bethlehem and never thought twice about it because it didn't look like it was different from any other birth that had ever been on earth. But it also has to be something that if I can even begin to wrap my head around what they saw, what the angels were saying, that it has to be life-changing. It changed the whole world because it's nothing like any birth that has ever been. No king in all of his glory. No Louis of any of the Louis. Even the sun king who surrounded himself with gold, painted himself with gold, said, I'm the sun king. Look at my opulence. We should look at that and say, oh, 
at your best, bless your heart, kiddo. That's a blue circle on pulpy paper. And at its worst, oh, God help you. That's what you think the sun is? I don't want to flatten Christmas into something that I can temporarily grasp by looking at a really good nativity scene. I want that to be something that jogs my thought processes, not something that fills them. I want it to be a reminder, not something that I say, yes, that's Christmas. Because I would have missed it. The world sees the same Christmas specials that you and I do. They've seen Rudolph. They've seen Scrooge. They've seen Elf. They know what Christmas is. Okay, let's do it this way. They've seen Little Drummer Boy. They've seen the nativity scene by them all. They know what we think Christmas is, right? But that's not what we think Christmas is. It's a tiny echo of it, and if anything, it flattens it. They don't know what they don't know. Just like the shepherds had no clue that maybe, what, a half mile away? The Savior has been born. The, the first salvo of the Great War has been launched. The, that, that Jesus was born, the Messiah that they've been waiting for. It took an explosion of God's glory to wake them up and bring them to Jesus. And when I say glory, I don't even mean light. Maybe I should do this one. We oftentimes, when we think of glory, we think of light because it's usually described in those terms in Scripture. But that's not what the word means. It's another one of those things where the word means something more important than just that. But the the Bible talks about glory streaming from God, glory streaming from his angels. In Isaiah, Isaiah talks about the Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares Yahweh. Talking about this Savior, this Messiah. He says, arise, shine for your light or has come. And the glory, kavod, rises upon you. The glory of God. Light means light. Kavod, glory, does not mean light. In fact, ironically, the word itself comes from a root meaning heavy, massive. It's the opposite of light in every sense of the English term. This gravitas, this oomph in substantial waves as if God's power and God's presence hit you like sunlight were somehow made out of lead. You're hit by the waves of his glory and that power emanates and waves forth. Moses had to cover his face with a veil because God's glory was reflecting off of it. It doesn't mean light. It's God's presence, God's power clung to him so much that it emanated from it. That's what filled the hills outside of Bethlehem that night. Not just the brightest light that a really good painter could make with titanium white paint, but the palpable power and presence of God that hit the the shepherds in waves like, like they were standing in the shallows of the sea and a wave came and crashes against them. That, across the whole sky, as scads and thousands of angels armed for battle make the statement that this all starts now. The same glory that shook Isaiah and forced him to crumple in humility because he could see himself in contrast to God's perfection and it made him feel weak and corrupt and broken. It's also the same glory that God had Paul talk to us about as Christians. In 2 Corinthians he said, we, we Christians who with unveiled faces... Moses had to veil his face. We with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. And we're being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing 
glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We who are redeemed by the Savior, who are washed clean by Christ, who are forgiven, we don't crumple. We reflect. We don't veil. We say, let this power, this presence, not just that we are shining God's light, but that we are reflecting God's glory, radiating his power, his presence, his own to a world that didn't even know how dark it was around them. You have to take that seriously. You want to you make sure that oomph that you're radiating, you're really radiating. You're not veiling it. You're not putting it under a bushel basket. You want to make sure that it's God's oomph and not just you oomphing. You want to make sure that you're oomphing for God and not just for your own purposes. You want to oomph. Hark, listen. The huddled angels sing. Glory to the newborn king, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Legions of angels proclaimed that. The world would not have seen or understood who Jesus was. Some may nod and assume that they do, but the angels saw his glory. That power, that presence, they knew what it meant. They understood the oomph, and they glorified God in the highest heaven. They knew what it meant. For the shepherds to have even gotten that barest glint, to have been knocked over by those waves of glory, that power of God, it would have changed them. It had to have changed them. It had to have changed them. It wasn't just, wow. You can see why they scrambled and said, we have to go look. We have to. We have to. We have to do that now. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. i got to go right now. You want to understand Christmas? The way to understand it is it was completely unimpressive. Do not make it more so. You want to understand Christmas? It'll knock you over. It'll drag you to your knees. If you are outside of Christ, it should drag you to your knees so you should say, what am I? If you're in Christ, it should drag you to your knees because you say, look what you've made me. Look what you've changed me into. You've made me an ambassador of this, of this. I don't care if I'm a housewife. I don't care if I'm a certified public accountant. I don't care if I'm a pastor. I don't care if I'm a doctor. Look what you've made me an ambassador of. That where I step is heaven. Where I speak is heaven. This, this glory filling the night sky, filling the hills of Bethlehem. God says, you can walk in that every day. That is Christmas. And you will not understand it. You will not understand the immensity of it. It'll bowl you over and you still won't understand the immensity of it until you walk with me in my presence and say, oh, I get it. That's Christmas. That's Christmas. Because you've been given the faintest, slightest glimpse at the massive ice that lies beneath the tiny surface chunk that we refer to as the iceberg. And catching that glimpse puts everything else into perspective. I don't see his birth as magical. I see his birth as entirely normal and incomprehensibly, supernaturally, cosmically powerful. Magical just doesn't cut it. That flattens it. I want to strip the nativity of its magic. I want to see it in its holiness. I want to go tell it on the mountains that Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, has been born. And that battle has been joined and the battle is already won. And I get to walk in that every day. Amen? Let's pray.
Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that there's just no way that Rubens' paintings or Handel's music or my words, to even put them in the same sentence, could possibly articulate. I thank you that this is so much beyond us, so much wonder. But I pray, Lord, help us to be changed today. Help our lives never to see mundane. Not because we're in the magical Christmas season, but because every day, every moment, we can be ambassadors of your kingdom, your amazing kingdom of wonders. Help us to see this world that way, that we see it as mundane bits, but that in everything, every mundane bit, pushing a broom at work, filling out paperwork, buying groceries, seeing a kid in a trough, all these mundane things, that none of them are mundane because all these things touch your kingdom. Help us to be ambassadors that touch this world for you. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.